You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. So how should we, as a local church, live together in this world? That's an important question. And the answer to that question is found in our passage today, still in Philippians chapter 1. Which means that we have been in this same chapter here for a total of six weeks, which I think is a record for us. All right, it's, it's been good for us to slow down in God's Word. What Paul's been saying here in, in Philippians 1 is some pretty amazing things, and he's not done yet. All right, in, in, in verse 27 here, what we actually see is the beginning of a new section. He starts a new section beginning in verse 27, because up to this point, Paul has been giving us a personal update. He's been telling the church how he's doing. Uh, he's been telling the church what he's been thinking. But now in verse 27, he turns to the church. And rather than ask the church how they're doing, he tells them how they should be doing. All right? He's an apostle. He can do that. Okay? Verse 27 starts a section of exhortation here in Philippians. Paul tells the church how they're supposed to be. And in terms of relevance for our church, I think this is exactly what we need to hear right now. Okay, now what I'm about to say is gonna, it, it, it may sound like an overstatement to you, but I really believe this. I believe that God has decreed in himself from all eternity that we would be in Philippians at this time because there are things in this book that we especially need to hear the first part of the year of our Lord, 2024, our 10th our year as a church. And among these things that we need to hear is the main exhortation in today's passage. And so... Here's the plan for the sermon, all right? I, I want to start here in just a minute by giving you a summary sentence of Paul's main exhortation. And then we're going to break down that summary and look at it in three parts, all right? Three questions we're going to look at. Now, before we get there, I want us to take a minute and I want us to pray again together. And the reason that I want us to pray together is I don't know, you know, I never know. We never know exactly uh, what we're all thinking when we come into a space like this, I don't know what you anticipate to happen over the next half hour, but I know what I've been praying and, and what I've been asking God to do in this time is, is for him to give us, as a church, watershed clarity on our primary calling. That we would just know together the main thing that God wants us to do. So what I'd like to do, I'm going to pray here. I want to invite you to pray with me. I want to invite you from the heart, as, as you can, to agree together with me in prayer. So let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, in your great mercy, in this moment, we come to you and we ask that you would give us together in this moment a special enabling by your Holy Spirit to receive your word and to embrace your calling on our church. 
We ask that you do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? All right. Now, looking at verses 27 to 30, the, the, the main thing we're going to do is focus on the first part of verse 27, all right, for this, for this sermon. And here's the summary of Paul's main exhortation for us. It goes like this. It is absolutely necessary that our church's life together in this world witness to the all-satisfying value of Jesus. That's what Paul wants us to know. He wants us to know it is absolutely necessary. Necessary is one C and two S's. All right, a little tricky word sometimes. Absolutely necessary that our church's life together in this world witness to the all-satisfying value of Jesus. Now, let's break that summary sentence down into three parts. I want to answer three questions. The first question is, why is this absolutely necessary? Now, notice the first word. In verse 27 is the word only. The sentence starts with the word only. And for that to make sense, we have to back up for a minute and see this in context. So just remember what we looked at last week. The Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome and he's awaiting a trial. And his life is in jeopardy. He's not sure exactly what will happen to him. He just knows that Christ is going to be honored in his body one of two ways. Either he's going to live or he's going to die. And so that's what he's been thinking about. And in thinking about that, he's concluded this. He's concluded, Paul has concluded, it is far better for him to depart from life in this world and to be with Christ. That's far better. But it's more necessary for the church. Or we might say it's more strategic for the church at Philippi that Paul stay alive. That he remain here in the flesh. In fact, it's so important that Paul stay alive that he convinces himself that that's what he's going to do. He says that his life will be spared. He's going to continue serving this church, verse 25, for your progress and joy in the faith. And that means, verse 26, that he's going to come and see this church. He's going to come visit this church again in order to make them abound in their glory in Christ Jesus. Now, everybody look at verse 26 for a minute, all right? Look down at verse 26. Verse 26. If you see it, say, got it. All right, now, I really appreciate the way the NIV translates verse 26. Verse 26 in the NIV says, quote, So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And the key phrase there is that your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound. Now, I want you to see that verse 26 there is a restatement of verse 25. Verse 26 is explaining more of what verse 25 means. So your progress and, and joy in the faith, your progress and joy in the faith, verse 25, means that your boasting in Christ abounds, verse 26. In other words, if you are growing in faith, 
if, if your joy in faith is increasing, it means that your confidence in Christ is increasing. And this is, I think this is really important. I don't want us to miss this because here's another way to say it. There is no such thing as growth in the Christian life apart from abounding confidence in Jesus. That's the takeaway. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Do you want to grow in your faith as a Christian? you got to trust Jesus more. You, you must trust him more. If you want to grow, you must seek Jesus more. You must know Jesus more. You must love Jesus more. That's the only way. There is no progress. There is no growth in the Christian life apart from more of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. And he's saying that is worth living for. He, he wants this so badly for the church at Philippi that he tells them, that's why I'm alive. Like if I live, I live for this. This is what I'm about. And so Paul says, hey, I'm going to come. I'm going to visit you. He's going to visit this church, and he's going to find them increasing in faith and abounding in joy. He's going to find them boasting in Christ. But wait a minute. Hold on a second. Paul is going to find this church like that on one condition. And this is where the only comes in. In verse 27. This is, a, this is a big word here. Paul is about to tell us the one thing that the local church must remember. If their faith and their joy are going to increase, if they will have abounding confidence in Jesus, this is the one thing they got to do. Now, of course... There's all kinds of things that matter for the church, right? There are lots of commands and instructions for churches in the New Testament. They're all important. But what Paul's about to say, it is an all-encompassing non-negotiable. As in, if they just do this one thing, everything else will take care of itself. But, Without this one thing, if they get everything else perfect, they will fail in their calling. This is, this is a big deal. And I, I love this kind of simplicity. I do. I, I've learned that I, I have a one thing kind of brain. Okay, I, I've learned this over the years. I've learned it the hard way. Okay, Like, for example, last week when I installed a new garbage disposal in our kitchen sink. I, I don't know if any, any of you in here love garbage disposals, okay? If you do, I might hurt your feelings here, all right? Just be warned. Last Saturday, I installed our third garbage disposal in about a five-year span. So if you, have, if you have any questions, don't ask me, okay? I don't want to <laughs> think about it. So what happened is garbage disposal number two stopped working and I go and, and buy garbage disposal number three and I thought okay I've done this before I've got YouTube this is like an hour project 
Well, by Saturday afternoon, about four hours in, I had to take apart the entire thing. Like I had to, I took it all apart. I had to move the electric cord from the old one and, and put it into the new one. So I'm like doing wire stuff and I, I'm, you know, it got, it got deep. I'm, I'm like so many videos I'm, I'm, I'm looking at and I, I, I had a couple trips, you know how it is, a couple trips to the hardware store to get something, come back, forgot this, go back. So I'm back and forth trying to put this thing together. Um, I ended up actually redoing the kitchen sink thing. And then I, I had to let the plumber's putty dry for the other thing, the thing. And, and so it's like I, I've been, I'm hours into this deal. And finally, after all that time, I'm ready to debut this brand new Insincorator Badger 500. <laughs> and so, of course, all my family's standing around, and I called all the neighbors over, and <laughs> my parents, mom and dad flew in, and, and we're all in the kitchen, and here we go, here we go. I plug it in under the sink, and then I go and I flip the switch, and nothing happened. Just nothing. And so then I run around and I check everything and I check the breaker and I try it again and nothing's happening. And eventually I figured out it was the outlet that was broken the whole time. <laughs> Garbage disposal number two was fine. It was okay. It was good. All I needed was electricity, right? That, that was the one thing. That was like the, the most essential thing is the thing I overlooked. I spent all that time, all that energy, and I had missed the one thing that was absolutely necessary. And the Apostle Paul does not want us to do that as a church. He doesn't. And so what he does, he, he spells it out. He tells us the one thing, the only thing, right? The one thing here. Absolutely necessary. You ready for it? Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I'm saying it, summarizing it. Only let our church's life together in this world witness to the all-satisfying value of Jesus. Now, why am I saying it that way? Let's focus next here on that phrase, your manner of life. But look at that phrase, your manner of life in verse 27. Here's our second question. Why does verse 27 apply to our church's life together in this world? Well, Paul says here, your manner of life. Who's he talking to? What does that phrase mean? Well, first, Paul's talking to the church corporately. He's talking to the church corporately. Your manner of life doesn't mean the individual lives of the members of this church. But he means, he's talking about the church's life together. And that's going to be obvious as we keep reading here in these verses because there is nothing that Paul says here that could be done in isolation from one another. What he says here envisions 
and depends upon a corporate body. All right, so he's talking about the local church together. This is our church's manner of life. Now, what does that mean? Uh, this, is fa- this is fascinating to me. The Greek, the Greek behind that phrase there, let your manner of life be, that's one word in Greek. Let your manner of life be is one word in Greek. And that verb is only used one other time in the, in the New Testament. And a more exact translation of that verb is to say, live as a citizen. Polytuomai. Live as a citizen. So Paul is saying literally here in verse 27, only live as a citizen. Only live as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. Citizen of what? Citizen of where? When we think of the word citizen, we immediately think about our local earthly context, right? We think about citizen and we think we're citizens of America. We're, we're citizens of Minnesota. We are, we are twin citizens, right? We think that way. But I want you to see something here. Turn over one page in your Bible. Philippians chapter 3. Turn over one page. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians 3.20. If you see it, say, got it. All right. Philippians 3.20. Paul says that there are those who set their minds on earthly things. 3.20. But our citizenship is in, say it, heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, get this. The noun there for that word citizenship in 320 is the same word used as a verb in chapter 127. So when Paul says in 127, only live as a citizen worthy of the gospel, he's not talking about being a citizen of Rome, which the Philippians were. He's not talking about being a citizen of America or or anywhere else. He's talking about being a citizen of heaven. A citizen of heaven. That's what he wants us to know. We, church, we are citizens of heaven. That's who we are. But, but, But where do we live? Where are we? We're not in heaven right now, right? Where do we live as citizens of heaven? We we live here in this world. And we are supposed to feel attention here. Like, it's not supposed to be easy to be citizens of heaven living in this world. But we're called to. We're called to live as citizens of heaven in this world and in this place. And I do not think, I do not think we can emphasize this enough. According to the Apostle Paul, this is the way that the church should think about its life together in this world. We are citizens of heaven. (laughs) And sometimes, look, right, we, we know, we feel it, how far away we are from home. And so what we do, we live here as citizens of heaven and we pray every day the way Jesus taught us to pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done 
on earth just as it is in, say it, heaven. We live as citizens of heaven here and we actually ourselves become agents. We become ambassadors of heaven for how God's kingdom comes here, for how his will is done here. That's who we are as a church. That's what we're doing here. Our church, this is a way to think about it, our church, this church is an embassy of heaven in this world. That steeples our flag, okay? We're an embassy of heaven in this world. We are ambassadors of heaven in this world. And we are here to point to another kingdom. We are here to point to a better country from which our Savior is going to come. And so whatever else we do, we do that. Whatever else we do, we do this. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he lives for. And so he's saying to this church, he says, hey, I'm living for your progress. I'm living for your joy in the faith. I want your boasting in Christ to abound. And so here's the main thing. Above all. Live together in this world as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I'm summarizing that sentence to mean, that, that phrase, worthy of the gospel of Christ, means we witness to the all-satisfying value of Jesus. Now, how do I get that? Third question. What does it mean to be worthy of the gospel of Christ? Now that word worthy in verse 27, it's the idea of being congruent or fitting. Worthy of the gospel does not mean deserving of the gospel. We can never, we can never deserve the gospel. Right? This is an important point, I think, because there's a common mistake that we can make at this, at this point. We, we might all agree that we're saved by grace. Saved by grace, at least at the start. But sometimes it's easy for us to think that after we have received grace, we gotta, we got to start working hard to make sure that we deserve that grace that we received. It's subtle, but it's the way I think that we can function. Sometimes by accident, we can think that living the Christian life is a kind of payback for the grace that God has showed us in the past. And I know about this because I used to think that way. Right? Some of you guys know, you've heard before, I've shared about um, that when I was 17 years old, I got into a terrible car accident and almost died. God spared my life, and it was a clear miracle that I survived. And in the weeks and, and the months after that car wreck, um, I really got my act together. Okay, I, I, was, I, I, was, I was determined to make the miracle count, to make the grace count. And so I became, as a 17, 18 year old, I became very religious. I became very driven. And do you know what happened to me? I became 
spiritually proud. Difficult. I, just, I was doing so good, you know. Like I was, I really got my stuff together. And then one day, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, I discovered the grace of God. I, I encountered the true meaning of the grace. It's right here in the Bible. It landed on me in a new way, in a fresh way, and it, it changed my life. And I understood that the good news of God is his grace. And grace, by definition, can't be earned. That's what makes it grace, right? Grace means we can never earn it. It's a gift to us. Grace is forever a gift that we don't deserve. Which means then, church, the dumbest thing we can do is be proud. It's the dumbest thing we can do after receiving grace. We can never pay back God for the grace. Grace humbles us, which means that the more we understand grace, the more thankful we become. It's grace upon grace upon grace, and we just keep getting more thankful. That's, that's life. That's, that's what we're doing, just overcome by grace. And so Paul here, Paul is not telling us to live as citizens in a way that deserves the gospel of grace. He means live as citizens of heaven in a way that fits with the gospel of grace. Live as citizens, church, live as citizens of heaven that fits with the gospel of Christ. Now, now what is that? What is that? What, this is, this, is, this is the question. What is congruent to or what kind of living fits with the gospel of Christ? That's a, that's a big question. What kind, what kind of living fits with the gospel of Christ? Well, Jesus himself actually teaches us this in the gospel of Matthew chapter 10. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. And you've probably heard these verses before. So just, just listen, listen to this, this verse, Matthew 10, 27. Listen to what Jesus is saying here, Matthew 10, 27. Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let's think about this. You got father, mother, son, daughter right here. Okay? And when it comes to the things in this life that we really love, we love, we love it, right? We love that. A lot of love here. Okay? So you got father, mother, son, daughter right here. And then you got Jesus right here. See? And Jesus says to us, if you love them more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. Which means, which means, it means this. It means that if you love them, more than you love me, it doesn't actually add up to who I am. That's what he means. If you love them more than you love me, it doesn't fit 
with who I am. See, Jesus understands. Jesus knows that he, he is the most lovable person in the universe. And so if we love anything more than the most lovable person in the universe, it doesn't work. And so the only way that our lives can fit with who Jesus is, is if we love him more than we love anything else. Moral teacher. Do you, you know what he's saying there? If you love anything more than you love me, it doesn't work. It doesn't add up. Because I, Jesus says, am the most lovable. To, to live worthy of Jesus then, to live in a way that's congruent to Jesus, to live in a way that fits with who Jesus Christ is, it means that we live in a way that shows that Jesus is more valuable to us than anything else. What fits with Jesus? What, the, the way of life that fits with Jesus is when Jesus is our all-satisfying treasure. That's what Paul's getting at. And that's what he wants this church corporately to understand, to live. He wants this church corporately to follow his personal example. And I think that becomes clear in verses 29 to 30. So skip there for a minute. Verses, skip 27, 28. We're going to look at those next week. Go to verse 29. Verse 29. We're going to end here today. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And that word granted there in verse 29 is literally the word graced. Paul's saying, it has been graced to you. It, it has been graciously given to you. And when Paul starts the sentence like that, we're about to open a present, right? Like he's about to say something good. And so we're on the edge of our seats here. He says, it has been graciously given to you. It has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also Suffer for his sake. What? What, Paul? I thought this was supposed to be a bonus. I thought you were about to tell us something good. Does this mean, church, that Paul thinks it's a grace to suffer for Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. And we're in deep waters here. I just want to tell you that. We're, we are in deep waters. This does not mean in any way, in any way, that suffering and pain itself is good. It's not good, right? We, we mourn and we weep and we don't want it. We don't want the suffering and pain. The grace, the gift, is in how the suffering relates to our faith. See, if it has been grace to us to believe in Jesus, 
that's enough, right? Like, just, just hey, we believe in Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm good. I'm happy. We're happy. We believe in Jesus. But if you are also graced to suffer for Jesus, then it means that you're believing. It means that your faith is experienced and expressed to the highest degree. That's what it means. It, read this, this, is an, this is an important sentence here. Believing in Jesus, we're good with that. We're happy with believing in, that is grace upon grace upon grace that we believe in Jesus. And I'm good there, okay? I'm good right there. But if you are also graced to suffer for Jesus, then it means that your believing and your faith is experienced and expressed in the highest degree. Now, this is going to be a little rough, okay? But I, I just, I thought we, we, we just need to go here. All right, so I want you to use your imaginations for a minute. Think with me. Imagine, if you can, like a hypothetical Christian. Imagine in your, in your, in your mind here, just think of a hypothetical Christian man. All right? Now, just imagine that this hypothetical Christian man, just, just to say his name is Job. Job. All right? Job is a Christian uh, he believes in Jesus. He's been forgiven. He's been overcome by grace. Jesus is Job's greatest treasure. And also, Job has a lot of kids. Like, Jesus has given him a big old family, and, and they all get along. They're all friends. All of his kids are friends. And they hang out together, and they celebrate, and they party, and they enjoy one another's company. Also, Jesus has given Job like 7,000 sheep, and thousands of camels, and oxen, and donkeys, and his, his garbage disposal never breaks, all right? I mean, look, here's the deal. Job, Job loves, Job loves Jesus. And Jesus has given Job some pretty amazing gifts. And so he's comfortable. Which could make us wonder, is it, is it really Jesus that he loves? Is it Jesus that, that Job loves? Or, or is it all the comfortable things that Jesus has given him? Like, which does Job love more? Does Job love Jesus more than he loves all the good things that Jesus has given him? We don't know. We don't know, right? I don't know. How, maybe, maybe Job himself doesn't even know. How could we know? How could we know? Well... What if some of those comfortable things were taken away? What if you lost a few? What if you lost them all? See, here's the deal. If we're honest, and this is the part that's rough, but just be honest. If we're honest, church, if we're honest, it is hard for us to say that we love Jesus more than our comfort. 
until we lose some of our comfort. See, there's love in Jesus. And man, every Christian has been graced to love Jesus. We love Jesus Christ. We love him. We love him. But then there is loving Jesus when Jesus is all you have. When you know, when you know that the main gift that Jesus has given you is himself. That faith is deeper, y'all. It's deeper. It's deeper. The experience and the expression of our faith in Jesus through suffering is deeper. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Not just believing for the sake of Christ, but also suffering for the sake of Christ. And what does that do? That maximizes our witness because people will see that and people will say, people will look at that and they will say, wow, this person really believes in Jesus. Like, they, they believe so much in Jesus. Jesus is so valuable to them that they're going to keep loving him even when that happens. Like, they, like they, they love Jesus so much, they're willing to give that up? You, you, mean, you mean Jesus, here you go, listen. Jesus is more valuable to them than even life itself? You, you mean for them that being with Jesus is greater than anything else? And like, they believe so much that when they die, they will be with Jesus that they can say, death is gain? Do you see the witness there? See, it has been grace to you, Paul says to this church. It has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then in verse 30, Paul says, that means, church, we're the same, you and me, he says to the Philippians, because you have been graced to suffer for the sake of Christ. It means that what you're going through right now, Church of Philippi, is what you saw me go through. What you're going through is what, you know, I'm still going through. See, what happens in verse 30 is, it, it, verse 30 brings together the entire chapter here, ch chapter 1. The reason that Paul spent so much time giving that personal update in chapter 1 is because he knew that the church in Philippi was in the same boat he was. That was his point. And that also confirms for us that Paul intends for his example to be followed. And he intends for his example to be followed by a local church, by a corporate body. Everything that he said about his passion in chapter 1 applies to the church. He expects the church, he wants the church corporately as a whole body to embrace Jesus as their all-consuming passion and their all-satisfying treasure. And so what he says here, church, is for us. It's for us. It is absolutely necessary that our church's life together in this world witness to the all-satisfying value of Jesus. And that's what we're doing here. And that's what brings us to the table this morning. We, I want you to know, as we come to this table, I want you to know that it's not just that Jesus is more valuable than anything else. 
but it's that he will truly satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. See, here's the thing. It's one thing to know that, a, that there's a treasure. It's one thing to know about a treasure that's worth more than all the treasures in the whole world. It's another thing to know that that all-surpassing treasure is what you need. That all-surpassing treasure is what you've been looking for. That, that the all-surpassing treasure that is Jesus is why you were made. It's why you were made. Jesus is the treasure who alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. And we remember that at the table. As we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we are saying from our hearts that Jesus is our hope. <laughs> He's everything to us. He's everything to us. And so if you're here this morning, and if you're a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to eat and to drink with us and to give him thanks. Receive this table and let your confidence in Christ abound. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.